John chapter number four this morning. John 4, we're going to round out this chapter of the Bible, and we have uh, been working through the book of John for a few weeks now, and uh, will take us the better course of a year, and John 4 (coughs) is one of the uh, larger chapters that has a lot going on, so we've spent the past two weeks in it, and now uh, we'll round it out this week. So John 4, we're going to read verses 43 to 54. We're going to read that section of scripture that's at the end of this chapter, and understand what's happening. Jesus, uh, if you followed the, the, the timeline of John here, uh, he was in Jerusalem, which is the south of Israel. He wanted to go up north to Galilee, so he went through Samaria that's in the middle. He stayed two days in Samaria, and now he's going to leave Samaria and get up north. This is where Jesus would have grown up. He grew up in Nazareth, which was a small town, but the region was, uh, was Galilee. So it'd be like, hey, you know, I'm from, where are you from? Well, you could say I'm from the Pittsburgh area, or you could be more specific and say Saxonburg or Sarver or Freeport or something like that. Jesus specifically is from Nazareth, but the region, the Pittsburgh area, is Galilee is where he's from. So he's going up there, and we're going to pick up this text in verse 43, and it says, now after two days, so this is two days in Samaria, Jesus departed thence and he went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his country. Then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. So it almost seems like if you read those two verses we just read that John's schizophrenic, he, he says, you know, Jesus gives the saying, a prophet doesn't have honor in his own country, or, you know, people that know you or, or you know, live around you, they're going to be less prone to honor you. But then he immediately says, he goes to Galilee and they receive him, right? So it's, which one is it? Do you have no honor in your country or are they gladly welcoming you? And, and the key is John setting the stage for the rest of this uh, chapter. And he says at the end of verse 45 that they saw all the things he did in Jerusalem because they were there with him in Jerusalem. And this really is why he's re- why they are receiving him, that John is going to show that their reception of Jesus is largely superficial, that they're looking for him to do miracles, Uh, This is not like the people of Samaria who received him because of who he was and because of his word. They're wanting him to do a trick. And uh, you'll see that Jesus reveals this in a few moments, that that they're not actually receiving him. They just want a magic show, basically. So verse 46. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee where he made the water wine. That's how John kind of started out his gospel with that story. There was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. So Capernaum is 25 miles northeast of where Jesus is in Cana, in the same region though, in Galilee. And there's this nobleman, or we would say a political figure, who comes to Jesus with a sick son that he would heal his son. So verse 47, when he heard that Jesus was coming to Judea, uh, Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and he besought him that he would come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So things are very dire for this man and his son. Then Jesus said unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. So understand ye is in the plural. This is one of the reasons why I personally like the these and the thous of, of the King James Version, or yees, because it's very specific. If I say you, I could be talking about you specifically, my wife, or I could be talking about you broadly. It's not super specific. Ye is very specific. It's plural. It's like saying yens, right? So Jesus is saying yens just want miracles all the time to believe. Which is a strange response to a guy asking you for healing, right? The dad's like, hey, heal my son. Why do all you people want miracles all the time to believe? So this is not what the man was hoping for. I can promise you that. 
Uh, verse number, where are we at here? 49, the nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down <coughs> ere my child die. So there's a lot of angst in this man. There's a, there's a lot of, Jesus, come please before my son dies. Verse 50, Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, or you could say, get out of here. Thy son, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said to him, Well, it was yesterday at the seventh hour. His fever left him. So yesterday at 1 p.m. So the father knew that it was the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to church. Uh, We count it a privilege to assemble, uh, to be able to sing, (coughs) to be able to pray, to be able to open a Bible. There's a lot of people around the world that, uh, for one reason or another, (coughs) can't do that. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray this morning that you would speak to us. Uh, Jesus, we want to tell you up front that we love you. Uh, that we praise you, that we worship you, and we want you to take our hearts and somehow put in us this desire to do what you say. We want you to incline our hearts to your testimonies. Lord, we want you to open our eyes that we may see just wonderful, beautiful things out of your law. So would you teach us this morning? We invite you to do this. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. a peace I've come to know Though my heart and flesh may fail There's an anchor for my soul I can say it is well Jesus has overcome And the grave is overwhelmed The victory is won He is risen from the dead And I will rise When He calls my name No more sorrow, no more pain I will rise on eagle's wings before my God fall on my knees and rise I will rise there's a day that's drawing near when this darkness breaks to light shadow disappears and my faith shall be my eyes Jesus has overcome and the grave is overwhelmed the victory is won he has risen from the dead I will rise when he calls my name. 
more sorrow, no more pain. I will rise on eagle's wings before my God, fall on my knees and rise. I will rise. And I hear the voice of many angels sing. Worthy is the Lamb, and I hear the cry of every longing heart. Worthy is the Lamb, and I hear the voice of many angels sing. Worthy is the Lamb, and I hear the cry of every longing heart. calls my name no more sorrow no more pain I will rise on eagle's wings before my God fall on my knees and rise I will rise I will rise How many of you ever have, you know, you have thoughts and cares and troubles and all that, and sometimes you need something just to shift your paradigm and, and bump you, you know, out of uh, whatever frame of mind you're in? That was me this morning in the first service was uh, that song kind of bumping me into a, a headspace that I needed to be thinking about Jesus in the future. Uh, well, this is the first supernatural healing that Jesus is going to do in John's gospel. Uh, we'll see many of them as we work through this gospel. And inevitably what happens when you come to the issue of healing physically, especially in a supernatural way, is that questions pop up. Uh, people start to think, you know, can I be healed? Uh, can they be healed? Why did God heal them but not them? Uh, is there something that I can do to compel God to heal me? And I want to take a few minutes uh, just to pastor you a bit and to give you uh, just some biblical thoughts on supernatural healing uh, that you see in the Bible and even that you see today because it's not something that was strictly in the Bible and, and to help you understand. Uh, so this really is not what the text is about when it's all said and done, but I feel pastorally that we should at least cover a few things uh, as we start to move through some healings in John's gospel. So I'm going to give you some really practical questions that oftentimes will come my way, potentially even in your way in regards to physical healing. Here's one that I'll hear often. Isn't death just a natural part of the process? Uh, this is something that I hear from irreligious people more than religious people, but quite often I'll hear someone say something to this tune. You know, hey, death is a natural part of the process. So whatever, you know, sickness or whatever it is that you have, you know, maybe go to the doctor, maybe try to get some help, but, but don't make a big deal out of it. You know, don't be so worked up and looking for healing or looking uh, to get rid of it. You know, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. You know, it's kind of the natural next step. But biblically and from a Christian perspective, uh, death is not the natural next step. 
Uh, death is something that awaits us all. You can't escape that. And I don't want to be gloomy this morning. Uh, the weather has already been gloomy enough for us on this, on this spring day. But that does await us. But to say that it's natural is, uh, is, is not true. Breathing is natural. That's why it can happen with no effort and it comes naturally to you. Death is not that way. This is why we fight so hard against death as a species, but also just creation itself. I don't care if you take a plant or any animal, there's a struggle for life. There's a push against death. And there's something inside of us that does not feel natural when a kid is hooked up to a machine or we're at a funeral or we're putting someone, we're digging a hole and putting them in a box inside of the ground. We don't feel natural about that. We go to a funeral and we feel weird. I've been to a lot, I've done a lot of them. I still feel weird at them. We still feel like our words are flimsy. We still feel like we don't know what to say. We have cliches of, I'm sorry for your loss and and I'm praying for you and those sorts of things. But there's something inside of us that it doesn't feel natural at all. And honestly, it's not supposed to feel natural because God created creation, according to the Bible, called it good, and there was not death, there was not decay, there was not sickness, but sin enters and along with it comes death. And this is why we need to wrap our heads around healing because we feel deep down inside when we're sick, when there's something wrong, when someone we love is sick, we want them to be healed. We don't want them to be sick or to suffer or to have agony or to have pain or to die. We want that and it pushes us into a desire for a healing. So with healing in mind, am I promised healing in this life? That's, that's the, the question of the day probably, that's the big question, uh, because God did and can and does heal in supernatural ways, but the question is, am I promised this? Is this something I can bank on? Is this something that I am guaranteed? Now, there is something that has been uh, largely dubbed as faith healing. It goes by a lot of other names, but I'll call it faith healing for sake of, for sake of simplicity, and the basic premise is that you can make God heal you. If you have enough faith, you can bend the universe to your will, and you can even bend God to your will, and you can make him heal you with the right amount of faith or the the right quality of faith or your longevity of faith or whatever sort of measurement they want to put on it. And it's it's just believe. You're already healed. You know, God put your healing in the mail. If you will have faith, it'll arrive in your mailbox. It's already guaranteed. It's already promised to you. You can you can go ahead and you can be healed. Now, this is frustrating to me as a pastor for two reasons. One is that it twists scripture. So that's the primary reason why it's frustrating to me is that it is a misrepresentation of what the scriptures actually teach. But it's also frustrating to me because it takes someone who's already burdened with a sickness and with an ailment or with a disease and it further burdens them and makes them think that my healing is up to me. And if if I have enough faith in it, everything will be okay. But if I don't, everything won't be okay. So the health continues to decline or the PET scan doesn't show what they hoped or, or something happens and now there's this additional burden and this additional self-defeat and beating yourself up trying to conjure up faith or trying to have the right quality of faith and it, and it hurts people because eventually even if you're healed supernaturally of that you're going to get sick again and eventually death is going to come and the inevitable result is that something happened where you didn't have enough faith or your spouse didn't have enough faith or your, your child didn't have enough faith or you didn't have enough faith for your child and it really damages and it really hurts people and it's biblically untrue. So some of you know what it's like to have your life hijacked by chronic pain, 
by uh, a sickness, by some sort of disease. And oftentimes people will try to manipulate scripture to make it seem as though you can be guaranteed, you can bank on some sort of healing. Most of the time when people do this, they'll quote Paul. But they'll do it to the neglect of other verses that Paul writes. And I don't have time this morning to, to get into all of this, but I'll give you one example of this where Paul in 2 Timothy will write and say, hey, there's Trophimus, this guy who's traveling with him on his missionary journeys. He says, Trophimus, I left him at Miletum sick. But Paul says, hey, here's this guy, and you know what? He wanted to come with me, but I left him there because he was sick. Not, you know what? Uh, I should have had more faith. I should have waved my magic wand, and I should have healed him because he shouldn't be sick. Not Trophimus didn't have enough faith. I don't know much about the guy. He never says that he doesn't have enough faith. I would presume, if he's wanting to travel around on a missionary journey, at the cost of his own life, potentially, that he probably had some good faith in the Lord, and he's doing okay. But Paul says, look, he was sick. He's not better. I'm leaving him there. The end. So there are, there are many examples of things like that in Scripture where you, you, on one hand, may see a supernatural healing. You, on one hand, may see someone that's sick, but you're not guaranteed some sort of healing based on what you do. And this inevitably ties into this question, which is, does healing replace traditional medicine? Because if you buy that my faith is the healing that I need, and this is up to God, and this is supernatural, and the physical is subject to the spiritual, and that I, I just, I just, it's on me, it depends on my faith, inevitably that leads you not to go to the doctor. At one point or another, you'll get there where you say, you know what, I need to have faith. If I go to a human to heal me, or to give me medicine, or to do something, then that would exhibit a lack of faith, and that I'm trusting in them, and I'm not ultimately trusting in God. So I don't want to exhibit a lack of faith. I want to have good faith, and I want my faith to heal me. So I'm not going to go to the doctor. I'm not going to take the antibiotic. I'm not going to do the medicine. I'm just, I'm just going to trust the Lord. And, and you know what? We don't need medicine. We just need supernatural healing. And there are entire cults that are centered around this sort of stuff and this, this sort of uh, teaching. And what's amazing to me is the person who writes more of the New Testament than any other person is Luke. So Luke doesn't have the most books of the Bible, but Luke has, as far as word count, the most in the New Testament more than anyone else. Who's Luke? Luke is the beloved physician is what scripture calls him. He's a doctor. So the doctor is recording acts for us, recording all of these miraculous healings, yet he's still a doctor who traveled with Paul, intended to presumably his medical needs and his ailments and Paul's thorn in the flesh and some things that Paul had. Paul was notorious for just getting beat up and, and getting, you know, punished a lot and, and had a lot going on physically. And, and you find that this is presented to us by a medical doctor who doesn't forsake his, his calling or his practice or what he's doing with life. So the more moral of the story for you is taking your physical ailments to God and to a doctor are not mutually exclusive, and you need to know that. So if you're sick, go to God to heal you and go to the doctor to help you. And perhaps he'll use the doctor, or perhaps he'll use something supernatural. I don't know, that's up to him. Perhaps he will use neither. But go to God to help you, go to the doctor to heal you. Furthermore, if you're involved in the medical profession at all, you're a nurse, you're a PA, you're a doctor, you're a dentist, you're a dental hygienist, you're whatever you are, thank you. We appreciate your, your service and your love and your caring for people when they're in a tough time and they have a need. Thank you for doing that and we appreciate what you do for our community. Fourth is this, is all healing from God. And that's, that's a fair question, right? Is, is all the supernatural or, or healing that does exist, not just biblically, but even today, and you can, it wouldn't take you long to research that or to find that, but is it all from God? And the simple answer is no. 
And there's a danger when you become physically fragile that you also become emotionally fragile and vice versa. Those two go hand in hand. That there is a danger that when you're suffering, you can get desperate and you will go anywhere and everywhere to try to find a healing. And I've, I've seen people go to the shaman or to the, uh, the witch doctor or to the new age book or whatever it may be to try to find a healing outside of their faith or outside of Christianity. And you have to know that there, there are sometimes healing there. There are people that are demonically empowered to, to heal, but you don't want to go there. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24, that he says there will arise false prophets and there will arise uh, false Christ and they'll show great signs and wonders. Like they'll do things that'll, that'll make your head spin that you think, how in the world do they do that? That is miraculous. And he says, in so much that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. He says their intention is to deceive you. Their intention is to lead you away from God and away from Christ with the supernatural. So Satan will gladly trade you a little bit of reprieve physically in this life for eternal life. He'll make that trade every single day. And know that if you start to just go search broadly anywhere for whatever healing from whoever, that that is a dangerous game to play and you don't want to play that game. Go to the Father through the Son for healing and ask Him if there's something that ails you. Go to the doctor for help as well, but don't go searching broadly wherever you can because it can end up being real nasty and real ugly real fast. Uh, Number five, why is healing so prominent in Acts but not today? So if you've ever read the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, which records early church history and will record uh, quite a few miracles, uh, there are 28 chapters in Acts. I want to say that 12 of them, uh, if memory serves me right, have a physical healing inside of them in a supernatural way. And, and people will oftentimes read Acts and they'll think, man, I mean, there's all this action and it's bam, 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 and look what's happening and this is going on and this is amazing and, and where, where's this today? Why doesn't church look like this today? Why isn't this happening? So you can read Acts in a day, but Acts didn't happen in a day. Right? You, can, you, you can lose the historical timeline. Acts is 30 years of church history. Now you have a lot of high points that are compressed into a short story and narrative kind of giving you uh, the high points of things, but you have a big span of time all pushed down into 28 short chapters that you can read in a couple of hours. You know, Acts wasn't a Tuesday. So that sort of stuff happened. That sort of stuff still does happen. I would argue that this week we saw something happen in, in our church where someone got a, a clean bill of health that, that really was God-sized, that just should not have happened, but did. So those sorts of things still happen, but don't, don't fall under the, the assumption that, you know what, I see this in Acts, so this should be like, you know, every single day, some, uh, somehow I come across some sort of supernatural healing in my life. Six, and quickly, when it comes to supernatural healing, what can I bank on? And that really is the question. What, what can I take to the bank? What can I rest assured of? How do I approach this as a Christian? And I'll give you two things. The first one is that ultimate healing will come one day. That's really what Matt just saying about. Looking forward to the day that based on Jesus' resurrection and the promise that he's given to us of eternal life, that I will rise and I will praise him and, and this will come one day. And all of God's children from the Bible, we're told that we will receive healing. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, and that will come one day. But you cannot grab God's promises and, and mesh them to your calendar and give them a deadline and say, it must happen on this day or it must happen at this time. And God is subject to me and, and answers to my whims and here's what he's going to do. That they does doesn't work that way, but you can rest assured that it's, it's happening one day. Jesus lives, suffers, and dies so that we do not have to suffer and die eternally, and that will happen. So our hearts 
yearn for, long for, and put great stock in verses like this in the Bible. Revelation 21, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. There there shall not be any more pain. The former things are passed away. We read things like that and think, yes, I want that. I I want that where the death and the sickness and the sorrow and the suffering are gone and our tears are gone. I want that. I long for that and we're promised that. We're promised that one day. I love the, uh, the analogy that Charles Simeon gives for this. He, he talks about maybe walking through the woods and pushing through like a thicket or some briars or something. And he says, dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. What's he saying? If if I can get my head and my shoulders through, then I can can drag the rest of my body through. And our head, Jesus Christ, the head of the church, all the suffering, all the death, all the agony is gone. He is through. And we, the body, we, the church, still may have to be patient in tribulation. We still may have to rejoice in the hope and look forward to that, but endure it for a little bit. But we await the day and we long for the day and we take stock in the day that it will come, that it is coming eventually. So know that ultimate healing will come one day. That's awesome, biblically. Know that you have a good father. So, once again, another thing that I dislike about faith healing is that it more or less teaches that you do something to God or for God, and then God does something good for you. It's pretty transactional in nature, and it misses the point, I think, that God is just good, period, whether or not you do anything for him or not. And you may be inclined to think, well, yeah, God is good, so... Why would God want sickness to take place? Why would he allow it to take place? Why would there be this, this tragedy or this pain that, that comes my way? I'm a parent. I, I try to be a good parent. I don't want pain to come to my children. I don't want them to suffer. If I had the ability to take away my child's pain and my child's suffering, I would gladly take that away from them and I would never let them go through that. So if God is a good father, why would he let me go through some pain or through some suffering, through through some disease or through some sickness? Why would he do this? But you're halfway right. You do allow your children to go through pain and suffering. You do. Ever given your child a shot? Maybe you didn't, or maybe you had the doctor give them a shot. Ever taken your child to the dentist? Ever, some of you know what it's like, the scary, one of the scariest things in life, to sign the form for your child, two years old, four years old, eight years old, to go into surgery and under the knife because they need it, and you sign the form allowing it. Why would you do that? Why would you give them pain? Because you understand it's good long-term. You have a long-term perspective that maybe your four-year-old does not have, that you see long-term, this is best for you. And yes, it may be a prick, it may be a shot, it may be the dentist, it may be even a surgery where we cut you open and there is some sort of suffering, but I understand that this is going to produce long-term health and long-term good, so I will allow this. So when it comes to our Father, our God, we understand that He's good and we lean into His wisdom and we lean into His understanding and we allow Him to do what He knows is right, what he knows his best, even sometimes if we don't understand it, and we allow him to do that. And that does mean at times we have to be, as Romans 12 says, we have to rejoice in hope that one day this will change, and we have to be patient in our tribulation. There are times where that is, is our lot in life. 
So what do we do when it comes to healing? Very simply, go to the Lord to heal you, go to the doctor to help you, do that. Don't be crushed under the idea that your faith needs to be at a certain level for God to do his part and to heal you because it's not true. Remember that ultimate healing is promised to you one day, not if, but when. If you can remember that, you'll do well with all the healings as you move through the book of John. Now, that was the introduction. It was great, wasn't it? Okay, now we have to actually have a sermon. Today you get two for one, right? So if you go to a restaurant and you get two for one, you think it's awesome. If you go to church, most people don't. They think that we have a, this, this hypothetically should end sometime. Uh, so let's, let's hit what the story says. All right, here we go. If, you're, if you read the story, your temptation is going to be to think, oh man, cool. Guy has son, son is sick, son's going to die, comes to Jesus, Jesus heals him. Look at the healing, awesome. Son's guy got healed. Great story. No, you missed the point entirely. If that's all you take away, you missed the point entirely. And John goes to great lengths to try to show you this is not the point of the story. The actual point of the story is not to t- talk about faith healing. The, the point of the story is to show you something different, deeper. So what's the point? I'll give you four of them. When you have a real problem and suffering, go to Jesus. I know four sounds like a lot, but I'll hit them fast. When you have a real problem, when you have suffering, when you have pain, go to Jesus. Here's a man who has a God-sized problem, whose son is about to die, and he is desperate, and he does not know what to do, and he decides that he's going to go to Jesus. And none of the story exists if the man tries to handle it on his own. If he tries to take the bull by the horns and fix fix this himself and do it on his own, none of it exists. But he had, even as a rich man, even as a man who had people under him, he has the wisdom and the humility to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need your help. I cannot fix this myself. Now, although Jesus gives him an answer that I'm sure he was not expecting and he was not hoping for, when it's all said and done, he gets far more than he bargained for. Because he gets physical healing for his son, but he gets spiritual healing for him and his household, and they all come to faith in Jesus when it's all said and done. But the lesson to learn is a very simple lesson, but a very profound lesson, that when you have problems, when you have things that ail you, when you have hurts, wants, cares, take them to God. Take them to God. Now, there are, in my pastoral experience, two reasons people don't take their problems to God. Because most people think it sounds great. People don't, number one, because they have a mis- the misconstrued view of God. They, they think that God's too busy, God's too big, God doesn't care about me, he only pays attention to me when I do, when I do something wrong, he has bigger fish to fry, and that, and that God is uninterested in my small little piddly problems, which is untrue. Or they think, you know what, I know, I know me, I don't feel worthy, I, 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 I don't feel like I, I have enough standing, I don't feel like I don't have enough credit, why would God want to hear from me, look at what I've done, I, I don't think that, that he'll listen to me. And that's not true either. Hebrews tells us that Jesus can sympathize with all of our problems because he was a man, he walked the earth, and he knows what it's like to have his friends betray him, to, to go through physical suffering, to, to suffer death, to, to, to have people think he's crazy. He knows what that's like, all of it. So you can take it to him and he can sympathize with you. Peter tells us to take all of our cares, big and little, to God. Big and little. Sometimes we get trapped in the, I'll take my big stuff, but the little stuff God doesn't care about. He does care about, and the Bible tells us to take it to him. Philippians tells us that we should take all of our care and all of our anxiety to God, and we shouldn't be anxious about it. But in prayer, we should go to him and take it to him. So take it to him. Now, it doesn't guarantee that God's going to do what you want. So you can go to him with your problem and with your plan, right? And God doesn't always follow your plan. More often than not, he won't follow your plan if you suggest one to him. 
So it doesn't mean that God is subject to your whims and he's your little genie in a bottle and he'll do whatever you say, but it does mean you can go to him and seek his help and say, here's what I need. Paul's a great example of this. Paul records for us in Corinthians that he had a thorn in the flesh. He had some sort of physical ailment. And he went to God on multiple occasions. He says three times. He went to God seeking that God would take this away and heal him supernaturally, which is another passage of scripture that completely debunks faith healing and and lets us know that it's, uh, I'm searching for a, a, a pretty word that's not mean. Um, I'm going to go with trash. It lets us know that it's, it's not, I'm, <laughs> trash was better than what I had, okay? So, <laughs> that here he has this problem. He goes to God. Paul, you have not have enough faith? What's your deal, man? No. God t- God's response to is my grace is sufficient for you. Amen. Paul will help you out. But the verse prior to that, Paul tells us why God would tell him this. Because he says, unless I be exalted above measure, he gave me the sword in the flesh. I would have a tendency to be prideful and to be lifted up. And God giving me this is actually a tool that he's using to humble me and to, and to carve away at a character defect in my life. And so he's telling me that his grace is sufficient and, and, to, and to grin and bear it basically with his help and to push through it, not be healed from it, but push through it. So Paul went to him hoping for one answer, but got a different answer. And no, that may be the case. Your children go to you and they ask things of you. Do they not? And you tell them yes, no, or later, pretty much. And that's pretty much what you're going to get from your father in heaven. Sometimes you get a yes, sometimes you get a no, sometimes you get a later. But go to him nevertheless. Go to him and take your problems to him. Secondly, and perhaps most importantly, if there's one lesson that I think that this text drives home, it's this, to let Jesus answer you on his own terms and to work in his own way. You let him answer you on his own terms and you let him work in his own way. Here's the story. This man who has a son who's going to die. How many of you, raise of hands, have had a child who you were at a point where you were fearful for their life? Okay, you, okay, you can relate with this then. You know this is a tough spot. This is a desperate spot. This is a, my, my whole life is revolving around this moment. And this man comes to Jesus in agony, says, heal my son. And Jesus' response is, why do all you people want miracles to believe? I dare say that deflated his balloon. Here he is in this moment. And it, if I was him, I'd have to come again. Like, what did I do? You know, I come to you. It's it's a reasonable request. You can heal. My son has a problem. Pretty natural. But it seems like he puts him off. And this is actually a theme through John. You'll see this over and over again where Jesus' mother comes. Jesus, they they ran out of wine. We, We need some. Woman, what have I to do with you? And it's like, what are you, what? And it seems at first glance like he completely just shoves this guy to the side. Says, you people always want these miracles. What's your problem? Have to believe. All you want signs and wonders. And the man does, takes it. He responds in a very humble way. Jesus, will you please come? His response to that is, will you please come? Will you please come to my place? Will you please heal my son? And why, why would Jesus do this, right? Why would Jesus respond in this way? I would argue that it, that it is love, that it is grace, that it is mercy. Simeon said of... Uh, the responses and rebukes of God. He said they're frequently forerunners to a peculiar mercy. 
So oftentimes when God rebukes you or doesn't do it your way or, or doesn't give you what you're asking for, it, it's the precursor to something that's it's a bit peculiar, but it's mercy nonetheless. Why would Jesus do this? Here's why. This guy, this guy has no idea who Jesus is. All he knows is he heard about a guy who does tricks. A guy who has magic powers. And Jesus may as well have been Gandalf. You know, he, he may as well have been Miracle Max from Princess Bride. He's, he's just... He just has power. That's all he knows. So, and, and, and perhaps he has power. He hasn't really even seen it. So I'm going to go to him and hope that he'll, he'll, he'll give me some. And, and in his mind, Jesus is the conduit of power. He's, he's not putting faith at all in Jesus. Jesus is just supplying this. He's just the conduit for us. But Jesus wants him and the audience at large that is there seeking these miracles and these signs and these wonders. He doesn't want them to just see the, the physical problem. He wants them to see the bigger reason why he's there to heal them spiritually. And the only way they're going to get there is if they can see beyond, behind and beyond what he's doing in a physical manner. And they can see really who he is and why he's there and what he's offering. So as they gather to see a trick, he naturally redirects their attention away from the sensationalism and away from the miraculous and tries to draw them to himself. And he's trying to teach this man who he is. So he responds with, with, with Jesus, please come help. Please come with me. Not, you know, I don't need this. Who are you? I'm, no, he responds in a very humble way. And then Jesus tells him in verse number 50, Go thy way, thy son liveth. Which is actually pr- pretty blunt. Get out of here. He's healed. Now, to us, this seems okay. Number one, because we know the end of the story. Number two, because we know other stories where Jesus long distance, you know, heals this, this uh, ruler's son or this other guy's, and he does these sorts of miracles. But this guy doesn't know this. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And if you're in this man's shoes, this is far less comforting than you would think. He, he got the words, your son is healed. But he's saying in response to being blown off, please come with me. And Jesus says, no, get out of here, but he's healed. So this, this is a moment for this man where he has to think through and, and honestly rethink what he would have naturally known Study the Bible pre-Jesus and try to find someone that heals from a distance. Anything he would have known would have been that the miracle worker has to be there, right? The miracle worker has to, he has to say something. He has to lay his hands on you. He has to put his staff on you and, and get a warm feeling inside or make you dip seven times in the Jordan or, or take my garment. I have to be present. You know, the presence of the miracles came along with the presence of the miracle worker. And he has to come and he has to do something. And, and he, he would have naturally thought in those terms. And Jesus must have made a claim to him that was astounding. Now, you do realize how godlike it is to say, hey, 25 miles away, this kid I never met, he's healed. Ta-da. Like, that, that, is, that is a massive claim. No one in redemptive history has ever worked like that. And here, this guy responds beautifully. And the, and the text tells us in verse 50, what does he do? He believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. That would have been hard for me to do. I, I dare say it would have been hard for you to do. If it were me, I probably would have kept trying. Jesus, okay, th- thank you, but you know what? I got an idea. Why don't, why don't we just jump on my horse? 
We'll get up there. You know, we'll have a great time talking all the way. And you know what? You, we'll get to verify this in person. I'm sure people will see it. I'm sure they'll laud you. I'm sure they'll lift you on their shoulders and say, look at what he did. And, and on the off chance, you know, it didn't take, you can fix it. And we'll just, we'll be able to work through this. But this is not what he does. Perhaps he felt like he couldn't go any further because he has two very, very blunt requests from, from that he gives to Jesus. And Jesus responds in a, in a blunt manner. Jesus could have gone with him and it would have been so reassuring, but he doesn't. And he doesn't follow this guy's plan. He doesn't do what he wants. He doesn't, with him and with you, okay? Pers- let's personalize this. He doesn't obey your commands. He's, he's not tame. He doesn't lean into your advice or follow your lead. If you're a Christian, you follow him. You allow him to work on his own terms. There's this, uh, this moment in the book series, The Chronicles of Narnia, which is supposed to be a, an allegory of, of the Christian life. And uh, there's this moment where the kids who go to Narnia discover that the king, Aslan, who's a lion, and he's a Christ type, that the king is a lion, and they didn't know this. And they, and they kind of are taken back by that, and they're, and they're shocked, and they exclaim, you know, a lion, is he safe? And the response they get is, safe? Who said anything about safe? He's good. And they're, and they're taught in this moment that really what we're taught all along the way with Jesus, that he's not, he's not tame. He doesn't do what we want all the time, but he's good. He's a wonderful counselor. He, he knows when you need a slap and he knows when you need a hug. He knows when you need smelling salts and he knows when you need a kiss. He knows when you need assurance and he knows when you need to take a 25-mile walk back home with a pit in your stomach the whole way, feeling sick and kind of curious as to what's going to happen. And in this moment with this man, he's doing what is best for this man. And he's going to get him to a point where he believes on Jesus for who Jesus is and doesn't just get a handout and a miracle, but actually believes on Jesus. But it, it's, it's a bit of a process for this guy. And it's a bit of a process for us to let God work in his own way, on his own time, and to not dictate to him what he's supposed to do and act like we're in control. Thirdly, and I'll hasten because time escapes me. This is simple, but once again, profound. Take what you know and live by it. I love this guy because he does, he does trust Jesus and he does do what Jesus tells him to do. And he moves from this just kind of rational belief in this power worker to this trust of Jesus He moves from not just trusting Jesus' works, but trusting Jesus' words. And he knows very little. Jesus gave him very little instruction. He's healed, get out of here. But he takes what he knows and he obeys. And he lives by it. And he he has internal conviction, but he has external action. They're mingled together. He actually begins to walk and do something with it. And I mention this probably every two, three, four months to you because there is a tendency inside of Christianity to operate by the assumption that, you know what, if I, the more I know, the godlier I am. My problem is I need to amass more information. My problem is I need to be taught. And at times we do need to be taught, but there's, there's this, there's oftentimes in Scripture, you'll be told something like this. Don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer as well. Jesus ends the most famous sermon of all time with exactly that. Hey, here's what I said. Take what I said and don't do anything with it. You're like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Take what I said and do something with it and put it in action. You're like a wise man that built his house on a strong foundation and you built your house upon a rock. 
Philippians, Paul writes this, it's one of my favorites. He says, nevertheless, whereunto we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. What's he saying? Continue in what you know. Walk in it. Don't be the guy or gal that wants new revelation all the time, but doesn't want to be obedient to what you already know. Teach me something new. Teach me something new. Obey what you already know. So we, we all need to be learning and obeying at the same time, and we all fall short of obeying everything that we know. But growing in truth is not just you assimilating information in a cognitive way and amassing for yourself theology. Growing in truth is connected to being obedient to what you're told. And the point is, don't go through your Christian life this week. Don't go into church with the assumption that, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to learn. The guy's going to talk. He's going to tell me something. It'll be good. But with zero intention of doing anything with it. The Christian life is supposed to be hands-on. It's supposed to be practical. It's supposed to be that you do something. It's supposed to be that you apply what you learn, that you take something and and you marry it to your day-to-day living. So understand that there's a tendency in all of us to lean towards just getting information and not doing anything. And that's a danger that you have to fight against. And this man's a great example of someone who took what he knew and he obeyed it and he followed it. And if you don't apply what you know, I'll even say this morning, if you hear something, you don't apply what you know, then you grow in a lie. Because if if you are taking on information that you have no intention of applying to your life and no heart desire to, you know what, I'll do something with this, if you just keep taking on information with no intention to apply it, it, it's completely duplicitous and it's completely deceptive and all it is is you growing in a lie and continuing to to learn more things that you're going to do nothing with. Now, we've all been there, okay? I've been there, right? We've all been there where we, we enter into church with just a million things going on and no intention of actually, you know, doing something with what we hear. But guard against that danger and do something with it. Lastly, I'm done. When you see the power and the love of Jesus in your life, tell your friends and family about it. The climax of this story isn't actually that the guy's son gets healed. The climax of the story is in verse 53, that when the father realizes that, you know what, this was true. I believed and I went, but I was still questioning. So I, you know, when, when exactly was it that he got healed? Oh, it was the same, I'm, I'm matching it up now, it's the same exact time that Jesus spoke the word. And all of a sudden this springs into something deeper and more beautiful in his faith. It says that, that he believes in his whole house. Now, how exactly that conversation went down, I don't know. Was it night? Was it morning? Was it lunchtime? Did he wait for him to get home from school? Did he, I have no idea. But I, we do know that this man takes his faith in Jesus and now his newfound belief in the Messiah, not just in what he does, but in who he is. And he takes it and he begins to give it to his household, to his family, to those that are there with him, those that worked on the premises. I want you to think about this. Is the kid that was healed... I don't know how old the kid was, 2, 4, 6, 13, I don't know. Let's say he's 6. He got healed. Is he still walking on earth today? He's not. I don't know if he got sick the next year and died. I hope he lived a full life. I'd like to think that he did, you know. I'd like to think that he got married, that he accomplished a few things at work, had a couple kids, had some grandkids, bought an Oldsmobile, took the grandkids to Sweeties for ice cream, you know, had fun. I'd like to think that he did, but I, I have no idea. He got, his life was extended temporarily, but really what the story is about is that this family received eternal life. 
that they came to a point where they understood who Jesus was, not just what he did, but who he was, and they put their faith and their trust in him far beyond some sort of physical healing. And this honestly is the point of all the miracles we're going to see in John. And you can't, you can't, you can't divorce that thought from your mind. You've got to remember that. At the end of John's gospel, he will tell us exactly why he writes about all these miracles. And he'll tell you in John 20 that Jesus did a lot of other signs in the presence of his disciples. And he says there's so many that the the books of the world couldn't contain what would be written about them. But these were recorded, these were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. The reason this story's here, the reason the next healing's here, the reason the next story, the reason the next miracle, the reason it's all here is to provoke faith in Jesus Christ and it's to, to take even those that have faith and to reinforce that existing faith and it's to bring about eternal life. And what I love about this guy is that he apparently wanted to share his faith. He puts his faith in Jesus and the only way his family is hearing about this is if he shares it with them. So here's this man who had evidence that Jesus loved him, that Jesus wanted to save him, that Jesus wanted to do something for him, and he decides to spread that good news to his household. And you may, you may be prone to think, Pastor, it's easy for him. I mean, look at what Jesus did for him, right? Look, look, look at how Jesus steps in and he, and he saves him and his son in this time of need. You know, naturally he would tell his friends and his family about that. But you don't, you don't, if you think that, you don't even realize that your, your slip is showing, okay? You, if you say, look at what Jesus did for this guy. Look at how he cared for him. Look at how he saved him. Look at how he stepped in at his time of need. Does the cross not teach us in a much more profound, in a much more beautiful way that Jesus does something for us, that Jesus loves us, that he cares for us, that he dies for us, that he saves us, that he steps in in our time of need. It's not this guy has some grand story that he can share and little old me, I don't have anything supernatural, I don't have anything special to share with anybody. So much the more we have something to share when, when God is working in our lives, has, does, is going to, when, when we sense his power and his love, it is it, just as natural as it was for this guy to tell people around him, here's what happened to me and for them to start to inquire about Jesus and come to faith in Jesus, it's all the more natural for us to do it. It's all the more natural for us to open up and tell those around us. So what do we learn? Take your problems to God, okay? Take them to him. Big, small, physical, emotional, I don't care. He wants to hear, take them to him. Allow him to answer you on his own terms. Allow him to work as he sees fit. Obey what you know and share what you learn. If you'll do that, I can promise you your Christian life will be different than it was last week. It'll be altogether different if you'll just do what this man did, take a page from his book and learn.